Welcome back to the eighth episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories. I'm recording this on the 21st anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. So our first two articles will both be looking at the effects of that attack, including the war on terror. Then we'll be diving into a story from the Wall Street Journal talking about how to effectively have conversations and to argue important topics in America. And lastly, we'll finish with our daily delight, a story that's meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into the stories. Our first story comes from The Daily Beast. The title runs, A Wounded Afghanistan Veteran Asks, Was the War Worth It? In May 2008, a Taliban sniper round hit the wall just inches above my head. The photos of me reeling back and falling to the dirt were shared by the Pentagon to show the sacrifice of bravery of Americans on the Hamald province front line, even though there were already signs we didn't want to win the war. A little more than two years later, in October 2010, nine years after I watched the Twin Towers fall at the end of my training at Camp Legion, I woke up with my head duct taped to my fridge with an IV drip in each arm. I had just downed two liters of tequila as fast as I could, and left a note for my wife saying goodbye. I couldn't take the nightmares and the flashbacks anymore. Two months earlier, I had caught in a IED blast in Mara on my fourth tour in Afghanistan that left me with brain injuries that caused memory loss and a rage disorder. My combat career was over. My health was in the hands of the government. I was declared 100% disabled by the VA, but nine years after leaving the Marines, I have still not been medically retired. When I go to the Veterans Administration, VA, to get treatment from a doctor or psychologist, they tell me, you've seen your physician once this year. Why do you need to see him again? So they prescribe me more powerful prescriptions and send me on my way. As I watched the completely avoidable debacle that was the U.S. troop withdrawal from Kabul, Kabul last year, I asked myself if the sacrifice was worth it for me and my friends. It's an impossible question. Mothers lost sons and daughters in mud holes 5,000 miles away, and at the same time, Afghan girls were able to go to school rather than be married off at 10 to 6-year-old men because the work we did. But if the reward for veterans is returning to a medical system ill-prepared to deal with the physical and psychological injuries injuries they suffered in combat, what's the point? When I left the Marine Corps in 2013, after 13 years, I began my civilian career working as a counselor and advisor, talking to veterans about how much the VA is there for them. The problem is the VA wasn't, and in most instances, it still isn't. I have learned firsthand there is nothing for many of the men and women who have spent years fighting the Taliban after 9-11. 
Like me, many of the veterans I consoled had just graduated high school and weren't old enough to buy a beer when they were shipped to a country that until recently had been ruled by fascists imposing a 7th century interpretation of Islam on the people. Now it was ruled by a corrupt government and who had little authority beyond cabal and regional warlords with villages that we couldn't pronounce. Most of them, like me, had never left the United States. I was one of the first Americans on the ground in Kandahar Air Base in 2001. Our objective was to obliterate the Taliban. But by my final tour in 2010, I could see that there was no real desire to win the war from the U.S. or Afghan army. We were mostly playing detective to find out which locals were being extorted so that their opium poppy seeds could be used to make heroin. Marines were also terrified about breaking strict rules of engagement put in place by General Stanley McChrystal. Then they were hunting the terrorists we were sent there to find. I stopped believing the mission and became more focused on getting my men home. Some of them didn't return, and it was my fault. For the next 10 years, my desire to leave Afghanistan victorious and with the democracy in place disintegrated. And let's take a pause here. This is extremely sad that even the people that were most affected by 9-11 and felt so impassioned to go serve their country overseas and to fight terror that they even became disillusioned with this war after nine years of fighting, it, it speaks to how aimless we were when we went in. We had a goal within the first five years. And as we very structurally, our approach was very structural in dismantling and finding key figures in the Al-Qaeda network to kill, not to be blunt, but to kill and dismantle the network, we had a very structured approach. And as time went on and we just wanted to spend more money and exert our influence overseas, it became more aimless. We started doing more work building schools and different organizations in the countries and building up infrastructure. But without a key guiding principle. So I'm, I'm a business major and businesses need a vision and mission statement. These are the guiding principles. These are the things that they are aiming for. And they're not something that is as definite as we will end this. So in a business, you don't say we will end food insecurity. You say, we will try to bring as much food security to as many people as possible because it's broad enough that you can expand. You don't limit yourself and you can keep pushing towards something even if you've done 75% of the work. And our mission statement here was so narrow when we went into Afghanistan that we came within completing it or at least our perception of completing it within five years, maybe even six years of being there. So at that point, instead of pulling back and saying, okay, we've achieved our goal, 
our goal changed. It was now, oh, we're nation building. We're building up the infrastructure so that the Taliban can't come back into power, which is still noble. But with that kind of pivot, a lot of the people that came into the military to fight terrorism directly because of what happened on 9-11, now they're kind of asking the question, is my time, my service actually worth it? We're losing men every single day to attacks from different organizations, different small-time warlords in Afghanistan. And what are we achieving? Are we still tearing down Al-Qaeda? Or are we just protecting the rights of a population in a different country, such as women in this case? So you could see where this, this slowly evolving, moving target, essentially created a lot of problems uh, internally in the military and also the public perception that we had here back at home. So, next. That's why the horrifying scenes from August 2021 should have come, shouldn't have come as any surprise. Any young Lance Corporal on their first appointment would have seen it coming. But the armchair generals in their ivory towers had blinders. The scenes of men, women, children, in stampedes desperately trying to get out of Hamad Karzi International Airport represented the implosion of 20 years of fighting and the desperation veterans still face. It fills me with fury that my story isn't unique. By 2014, a year in my new civilian life, the list of powerful medications I was prescribed had increased to 18 pills every day. I I lined up the opioids on the table, popped them one by one in a ritual more natural than breakfast. There was a bottle for depression, another for seizures, one to help me sleep, another for panic attacks, one for anxiety, another for low testosterone, and medication for ulcers. The drugs the VA loaded me up with while I was waiting to see a doctor or specialist horrified my wife. Bobby, and she spent hours online researching the side effects to make sure I was safe. One day, while scrolling through information about subtotriptane sustenate, the pill I took to ease my migraines, she discovered it could kill me if I mixed it with other drugs, including parapaxetane, another item on my long list of prescriptions. The combination would create a cocktail that would cause my serotonin levels to increase to a point that could be fatal. I developed stomach problems. It would spend hours throwing up in the bathroom because of the pills, doing untold damage to my body. Bobby told my doctors she would no longer allow me to take them, but they kept filling out my prescriptions, believing it would help ease my suffering, and all it did was make it worse. The VA staff thought I could fend for myself using this magical collection of pill bottles. But even more shocking is the fact that almost 68,000 veterans in VA care were addicted to opioids at the time, many because of overprescription. To be sure, not all of the VA is broken. The majority of doctors and nurses working at the hospital and clinics care deeply for veterans and should be given sainthoods for the work they do. But the access to vital care isn't there. In my hometown of Jacksonville, North Carolina, there are two doctors for a town of thousands of veterans. 
The fat cat administrators who run things are cashing in their bonuses. Executives took home almost $278 million in 2013 for their supposed work that they do. What if the money had been used for more doctors, nurses, or psychiatrists? Personally, I refuse to believe that the sacrifice of even one Marine was in vain. We gave Afghanistan a glimpse of freedom for 20 years. Some Americans have good experiences with the VA, and others simply don't need care at all. Others struggle, like me, when it should be far easier. All veterans should be able to get doctor's appointments without waiting weeks and should be given the decency of proper, attentive care after risking their lives thousands of miles away. My anger over this country's treatment of veterans, which claims to celebrate as heroes, is why I finally built up the courage to sell my story in my book. Now, I know more than ever... My experience is one that needs to be shared and understood. There are men and women who need help now, and there are still many more that will need it in the future. So a pretty scathing review, or at least an honest look, at the VA here in America. And that's something that has gotten a lot of attention over the last few years, especially with our increased presence, or at least um, the presence we had in Afghanistan and all these other insurgencies into other countries where we're trying to fight terror, quote-unquote, we we built in a great system. We have a great military system when you're overseas. The chain of command is clear. We have lots of resources, at least the best we can provide for our military personnel overseas. But then when they come back, they get absolutely stranded. And it is it is sad that we haven't built up the infrastructure on this side of the Atlantic to say, if you go over there, you fight for us, we can also support you when you come back. So maybe it brings up the question, should we rehaul the VA from uh, an internal point of view? Should we spend tax dollars to redo the VA? Or do we address this by not having as many uh, people that need to go to the VA, which would mean we have less people overseas, less wars that we're actively participating in and things of this nature. It's a very hard question to answer. But after 20-some years in foreign countries being involved, I think we need to take a more isolationist, more isolated view in that we need to worry about ourselves domestically first. I mean, we're going through crazy inflation at the moment. We have lots of issues domestically that we need to address. So I don't necessarily think that we should be spending as much time and energy overseas. But there's a counterpoint to this, which comes from Fox News. The headline reads, Are we safer today than on 9-11-2001? More than 20 years ago, into the war on terror, a year after the Taliban overtook Afghanistan, terrorism still remains a threat to the American security and interests around the globe. Quote, I think security has certainly improved, end quote. Long War General Managing Editor Bill Roggio told Fox News Digital, quote, you haven't had a major 9-11 style attack 
there have been other attacks, but certainly nowhere to the magnitude of 9-11, end quote. Much has changed since al-Qaeda terrorists hijacked planes and sent them crashing into New York City's World Trade Center and the Pentagon, resulting in over a two-decade war on terrorism and overhauls of federal intelligence and law enforcement agencies aimed at preventing another attack. Some changes, such as the addition of the Department of Homeland Security, have made the U.S. less vulnerable to attacks, experts say. Quote, we have learned since 9-11 how to protect Americans from terrorism, end quote. President Biden's counterterrorism advisor, Elizabeth Sherwood Randall, said last year during an experience at the Atlantic Council, quote, it isn't a fail-safe and terrible things still happen, but through a combination of actions abroad and at home, we have thus far been able to disrupt and prevent another 9-11-style attack. End quote. Yet the threat that shocked Americans 21 years ago remains strong throughout the world. Quote, the threat that emanates from terrorist groups across the world remains and has metastasized in the region where there wasn't a jihadist presence, end quote, Raggio said. According to a Washington Post-ABC News poll conducted last year, 49% of Americans believe the country is safer today than it was before 9-11, while 41% believe the U.S. is less safe than it was 21 years ago. The numbers mark a dramatic departure from the same survey two years, only two years, keep that in mind, after the 2001 invasion of, of Afghanistan. In 2003, 67% of Americans believe the country was safer compared to 27% who said it was less safe. That drop-off is staggering. Two years after we had our the worst terrorist attack on U.S. soil, and we're showing in what? So the math here is we have 67 in 2003. We have 49 last year. That's a 17-year difference. And it's a drop-off of nearly 28 percentage points. Where tw- people believe that we are less safe now than directly after those attacks. I mean, two years is a long time, but you feel like it would stick in the cultural zeitgeist a little bit more. But now we're saying we're less safe. And maybe that's because at this point last year we had just withdrawn from Afghanistan and we saw what was a humiliating failure of both this administration, but also the bureaucracies that be in Washington. But that's extremely scary that we see that much of a drop-off in in public opinion. Back to the article, an NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll conducted last year had worse results, with 30% of respondents believing that the country is safer than it was before 9-11 compared to 44% who said that is less safe. America's chaotic withdrawal from Afghanistan after nearly 20 years of war, which resulted in a return to Taliban rule, may justify that pessimism. Raggio said the situation on the ground may be worse than before 9-11. Quote, Today, Afghanistan is fully under Taliban control with the help of al-Qaeda, end quote, Raggio said. 
noting that in 2022, a significant resistance to the Taliban, such as the North Alliance pre-2001, does not exist. The foothold al-Qaeda has in Afghanistan provides the organization with two strategic advantages, safe haven and state sponsorship. Like before September 11, 2001, the terrorist organization can use Afghanistan as a base of operations with little fear, providing safe haven to recruit, train, and possibly carry out attacks. However, unlike in 2001, the Taliban completely controlling the country means the organization will have a powerful ally and plenty of protection. Making the threat potentially more deadly is that terrorist organizations have both multiplied their numbers and spread more far-flung regions of the world, making it difficult for the U.S. to track and fight the organization on multiple fronts. Quote, Al-Qaeda has active insurgencies in places like Yemen, Somalia, Pakistan, Mali, and all throughout Africa, end quote. Raggio noted, quote, it has a large carade inside of Syria, and then you have the Islamic State as well, operating in many of the same places as well as Iraq, end quote. Raggio pointed out that Despite the spreading threat, the U.S. and other Western governments have shown little appetite for an offensive campaign against terrorism. Three consecutive U.S. administrations have vowed to put a halt to, quote, endless wars overseas, eventually resulting in the deal with the Taliban and the abandonment of the American position in Afghanistan. However, no longer taking the offensive in the war does not end it, Raju argued, noting that many organizations across the world are still committed to carrying out their plans. Quote, you can end your involvement in the war, but that doesn't mean the enemy has. End quote. Raggio said, quote, the enemy is still gets a vote. End quote. Considering the lack of U.S. commitment to the fight, Raggio worries that the terrorist groups will be able to regroup and start plotting their next attack. He noted that, Many didn't accept terrorists using box, box cutters and airplanes to attack the U.S. 21 years ago, arguing that they now have the ability to plot their next large-scale attack while no longer on the defensive. Quote, I, want to give them, I don't want to give them the time and space to think about what the next attack against us would look like, Raggio said. Quote, they're indoctrinating, they're collecting funds, they're plotting their next attack against the West. He added, quote, we have limited capabilities to reach out and touch them, and that gives them the ability to innovate. I think Raggio, obviously because of the group he's associated with, is a little bit of a war hawk. Um, I don't know if we necessarily need to be as active on the front line as he would propose. And the reason I say that, not just, oh, I don't think we should be involved with the context of that last article, but in general, I've seen throughout my 20 years how this war has been ongoing. And as I mentioned earlier, the target continues to move. It's we go in with one clear goal or at least a few murky goals like, oh, we will end terrorism but we also ended abroad, which was something Bush said. He said, we're going to get the terrorists that attacked us, but we're also going to stop this kind of terrorism throughout the world. 
that is a very, very broad brush to paint our mission with. That is very ill-defined. And then, as I mentioned earlier, the target moved. Once we had gotten rid of a lot of Al-Qaeda's leaders and gotten rid of some of their infrastructure in Afghanistan, it became nation-building, trying to spread democracy. That's a noble cause. But does that mean that our tax dollars need to go there and stay in that other country, constantly sending over rations, military equipment, doing training for foreign languages, bringing in resources for universities and schools. Do all our tax dollars really need to go to that overseas? And then not only am I looking at the how does it affect the average citizen, we have to look at that last article. Like I mentioned before, this rant got a little bit out of control. The effect it has on our soldiers coming back from Afghanistan, coming back from these war zones, and being absolutely devastated. The previous article talked about how he's on eight different types of medications, and he, at one point, woke up taped to a fridge with IVs in his arms because he had written a suicide note and he couldn't stand living anymore. These kind of results, though they are not every single soldier, though we do not see every single soldier coming back with PTSD or losing an arm, some are able to come back into civilian life No problem. They're able to come back, see their wives, raise their children, even become prominent members of Congress like Dan Crenshaw. But that's not the case with everybody, and we need to take those smaller sample sizes of veterans that don't return well and that are not being treated well as well when they come back and they go to the VA for help into the equation. Is the cost-benefit analysis of this war... Are there more benefits than costs? I I can't see it. I don't. As a person who was born a year before the 9-11 attacks and has lived through all these, all 21, 22 years of our involvement, even though I can't remember all of it when I was younger, I can remember a lot of it from the time I was about eight and beyond, I don't think it's worth it. I think these endless overseas wars, as you see Tulsi talking about, you see Trump phrasing it that way, these endless overseas wars are not a good use of our money and our time. I think that, yes, they keep us militarily prepared. They keep our soldiers trained so that if anything does happen, we're not going to look like Russia or China who only has run military drills rather than being in an actual conflict and having soldiers who are prepared for battle. But do we really need to be this prepared where we can't go 10 years without being in some sort of giant conflict? We went from Korea to Vietnam to the Gulf War, and then we're jumping into Iraqi freedom? I'm just... I don't, I don't see it. I don't think it's a good use of our taxpayer dollars, and I think we need to worry about more domestic issues before we start trying to fix other people's countries. Now, does that mean that we shouldn't export influence, that we shouldn't try to hold our position on the world stage? No, that's not what I'm saying. I think we can do that in a cultural as well as economic sense rather than being ever-present in a military sense. So I think that's how we need to keep our grip on the global conversation with culture, economics, 
and a little bit of military influence here. They're having bases in countries with our allies and have strategic locations where we could fight back potential threats. China, Russia is now on that list for sure. But I don't think that we need to be involving ourselves actively in wars unless our sovereignty is directly impacted or could be directly impacted. And also we need to protect our allies and give them assurances such as the members of NATO. And also the main one that always comes to mind for me is Taiwan when it comes to the encroachment from China. All right, that's enough war talk about the last 21 years. You can make up your own opinions if you want to throw them in the comments section and talk about it. Um, that, that'd be great. But let's move on to something a, a little different. So from the New York Times, how to argue well. So it's an opinion piece by Pamela Paul. School's in session. Workers have been summoned back. Campuses are open for protests and counter-protests, invitations and disinvitations. And a nasty round of midterms is upon us. That's plenty of fodder for argument. And that's leaving out perennial sources of conflict, like who's supposed to load the dishwasher? Who wants to pick a fight first? Because fight it out we will. In a country riven by discord, the extent of disagreement among people, their political representatives, and their media outlets feels simultaneously intransigent, untenable, and entirely inevitable. Not only are we bad at arguing with one another, but we're also bad with agreeing with one another. Part of the problem may be that we're not arguing over the right things. Part of the problem may be that we're not arguing well. And part of the problem may be that we're not arguing enough. A little high school debate club might help. Bo Seo, a 28-year-old two-time world debate champion, says the problem of polarization isn't so much that we disagree, but rather we, quote, disagree badly. Our arguments are painful and useless, end quote. We spend more time vilifying, undermining, and nullifying those we disagree with rather than opening or changing their minds. If people took their cues from the world of competitive debate, he argues in a recent book, it would be easier to get people to reconsider their views or at least consider those of others. Let's consider his argument. In his book, quote, Good Arguments, How to Debate Teaches Us to Listen and Be Heard, end quote. CO, now a second-year student at Harvard Law School, says what we need to do is disagree more, but do so constructively. In debate, he writes, rebuttal, arguing back, is a, quote, vote of confidence, not only in ourselves, but our opponents, one that contained the judgment that the other person has deserved for our candor, and they would receive it with grace, end quote. And approaching arguments with reason, logic, respect, and empathy can help people handle opposing views. While that may not work on Twitter, <laughs> where character assassination and chasing likes win over good faith argument, or in electoral debates, which have become little more than sponsored advertisements or opportunities to loom malice over one's opponents, it may work in real life. But you have to keep in mind a few key principles. First, know when to engage. 
arguments, CO reminds us, are, quote, easy to start and hard to end, end quote. For a dispute to go well, it should be real, important, and specific. You need to have a point to make, not just an emotional conflict or complaint to air. If someone has hurt you, figure out why. That becomes a real basis for an argument. Next, pause to consider how important that point is and whether it's worth arguing over. Finally, stick to the specific dispute at hand so that the argument doesn't expand or spiral. If the disagreement really is over the dishwasher, and look, there's often cause, don't let it become a referendum on your marriage. Once you've decided to argue, CEO says, know what it is you're arguing about. To begin, determine the fact, judgment, or prescription that you would like someone else to accept. Let's say it's, quote, Jen is a team player. In order to make that claim, add the word because and give your reason. Because she involves everyone in the department. From there, you offer substantive uh, substantiation and evidence to back it up. Quote, she always goes around the room. She always checks in with her crew weekly. That helps make your case. Importantly, show how someone else is wrong. That is not the way of being correct yourself. In debate, tearing down the other team doesn't necessarily prove your team is right, nor is it likely to persuade anyone who didn't agree with you in the first place. Quote, no amount of no is going to get you a yes, one of CEO's coaches once told him. Finally, never let a bully dictate the terms of debate. If faced with a brawler, someone whose aim is, as CEO puts it, quote, not to persuade but to silence, marginalize and break the will of their opponents, end quote, your only hope is to restore the structure of the debate. In other words, see above. Some say competitive debate is a flawed model for healthy discourse, whether for domestic disputes or political disagreements. In an essay in the Dublin Review, the novelist Sally Rodney, a former champion debater, characterized formal debate as overly aggressive and possibly immoral. Quote, for the purposes of this game, the emotional or relational aspects of argument are superfluous, end quote, she wrote. The novelist Ben Lerner, who also spent years as a debater and experience he drew from in his 2019 novel, The Topeka School, told me that he had to unlearn the idea that, quote, every conversation ended with a winner and a loser, end quote. Whatever the shortcomings of school debate, our prevailing models for arguing, cable news and courtrooms, certainly don't offer much hope. As Mark, Mark o- Oppenheimer, a former religion reporter for the Times and author of a memoir about debate, told The New Yorker in 2010, quote, the soundbite culture has ruined it all, end quote. And that was 12 long years ago. But CEO thinks we idealize the past of civil disagreement, quote, those were times when people weren't able to speak, end quote, he told me recently. Quote, the disagreements were, well, they weren't visible. What we are doing right now is unprecedented, which is allowing a diversity of people to speak, end quote. Avoiding difficult conversations, he said, can, quote, shade into contempt and otherness, end quote. The best place for those disagreements may be outside our current public forums of debate. 
places that offer a chance to meet people where they are rather than perform in front of an audience. Rather than annihilate a classmate in a large lecture hall, invite them to coffee. Take a conversation offline, which removes the incentives to escalate. You can't deplatform your uncle at Thanksgiving, CEO points out. After the long hibernation of COVID and a few especially brutal years of online discourse, we could all use a little practice having face-to-face disagreements again. That much, at least, isn't arguable which is a very clever way to end the article. And I think uh, she's definitely getting at something here, which is we tend to shoot past one another when we're having conversations or debates, arguments. I think a key thing that they don't necessarily mention here is establish your, your bias, your principles from the very beginning. Say, I'm coming at this from a blah, blah, blah perspective. Where are you coming at it from? Because if you set up those guardrails, if you have an understanding of why someone holds an opinion, or at least what principles, morals, ethical positions allow them to frame what they believe in a logical and rational way, then you can actually have a conversation about the underlying problem or disagreement rather than get caught up in the emotions of the argument. So a great example is if you talk about security versus liberty. If you just come at it, oh, well, I think that cops should be able to uh, have access to our dash cams so they can see everything that we're doing and they can track us and make sure that everybody's being safe and secure. Versus another person who says, I want to have my dash cam for my security, but I don't want anybody else to be able to look into that. I don't want them to have access to any of my information. It's my business, and if I want to use it and give it to the police so that they can find somebody, that's the way we should go about it. And underlying both of those positions may be a person who greatly believes in liberty, his ability to manage and live his life as close to the way he wants to without breaking the law, and another person who values safety and security rather than being completely free to do whatever she wants. She's willing to give up a little bit of her freedom in order to be safe, and he's willing to give up a little bit of security and safety in order to be free. But if they come at that and just start arguing about the problem itself rather than acknowledging that's where they're coming from, they're going to miss the ball. And they actually should have an un- a conversation about those underlying beliefs, which will be more beneficial to them because maybe they can meet in the middle. Maybe you can understand, oh, well, maybe there are certain things I do give up my liberty for in order to be safe. And maybe she can understand why giving up your liberty and some of your rights may be not the best thing, even for a little bit of security. So that's one of the main things that I took away from one of my philosophy classes with my uh, professor Zimmerman. He was always used to say, I don't care what you think. I want to know why you think that way. And that really always stuck with me because it really gets you to stop and think and say, am I holding on to certain beliefs because of emotions or is there a good rational thesis behind here? And then it also makes it easier to have conversations with people and debate them about different topics and not necessarily in a hostile way, but to at least have a conversation where you're trying to understand one another 
and it gives you better insight as to why certain people might hold those beliefs. And maybe you can relate with that a little bit better when you understand their underlying rationale. All right. So our last one, our daily delight, it comes from today. King's Charles Spaniel owners are celebrating the ascension of Charles III. Queen Elizabeth was known for her love of animals, especially her beloved corkies. The British monarch and her four-legged friends have been connected since she was gifted her first, cor- first corgi, Susan, when she was 18. In the wake of her depth, death on September 8th, her son, the former Prince of Wales, became King Charles III, and with that name change, his subjects were celebrating two certain similarly named breed of dogs. One, the King Charles Spaniel, and two, the Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. Charles' kinship was automatic, and a spokesperson for the 73-year-old royal confirmed to NBC News that he would be known as King Charles III. Writer Molly Goodfellow's tweet went viral after she wrote, Gonna be impossible to say the words King's Charles without adding the word Spaniel at the end of it, I'm afraid. That also fueled King Charles' Spaniel owners to share their thoughts on the new King of England and to show off their furry friends, who appear to now be, (laughs) have regal attitudes. Quote, as the owner of King Charles' Spaniel, I can confirm my whole family now refers to him as your majesty, end quote. One person replied to Goodfellow. Another person wrote, my parents, King Charles Spaniel, minutes after hearing the news. And it came with a snap of the family pup looking very excited. Quote, if you have a male King Charles Spaniel, you have to put a crown on his head and tell people to bow. Change his name to his majesty, end quote. Another person suggested. So it's nice to see that even with the death of Queen Elizabeth, that something nice can come out of that situation with the cute little story about the King Charles Spaniel. All right. If you want to see or read any of the articles that I went through here today, the link to them will be in the description below that like and subscribe button. And with that, there's only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.